Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present. The hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of Jira, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal, and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello guys, gals and non-binary pals. You're listening to the Big Sister Hotline with me, your host, Clementine Ford, uh, the author of the books Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys and the forthcoming memoir How We Love, which is out in October. I have to apologise because I drank an extraordinary amount of wine last night and I'm feeling pretty rough. But I'm here today with my beautiful friend Ada Conroy, uh, who I'm going to talk to about Ada's work. Ada works in uh, women's health and uh, violence prevention. She's fascinating. She's doing really important work. And we are also big Buffy fans and uh, have struggled with the fallout of what that means. We're going to get into that, though. Mm. Ada, welcome. Welcome Thanks. to the hotline. I think, that's, I think that's the least professional intro I've ever done. But, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to push through. <laughs> How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm not hungover, thankfully. Lucky you. <laughs> I should say as well for people listening, I'm sitting here with you in your kitchen. Normally mm-hmm. I record in my kitchen, but we're in your kitchen today. In your beautiful retro house that I walked into and was like immediately wanted to live in. So many plants, all of that great like 1970s Australian kind of um, architecture. Do you just love living here? Does I, it make you happy? It's absolutely glorious. And I guess I've been, you know, working from home for the past year and really quite happy about it. Because it's just, it's just one of those really beautiful, you know, reservoir houses that hasn't been renovated. Um, and so, yeah, we're really happy. It's gorgeous. It yeah. makes me so happy to know as well that knowing the work that you do, that you have this space to come back to where you mm. can, you know, the windows are open, the air's flowing through. Like, you've, it's not that I know a lot about this stuff and it might sound a bit woo to some people, but it's got a really good energy flow <laughs> through the awesome. house. Um, yeah. So let's talk about the work that you do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I've been uh, working in the family violence sector for just over two decades. And so most of that time, so, you know, working with victim survivors at what we'd call the pointy end. So working in crisis, refuge, counselling, casework, outreach, and then uh after my daughter was born about – she's 12 now, but probably when she was about one, I started working as a family violence trainer. 
and then uh, working in men's behaviour change, so working with male perpetrators of, of family violence. Uh, and I, I've stopped doing, I stopped doing that a couple of years ago, but I now train people in how to, I guess, resist colluding with men's violence and with men's sexism um, and, you know, sense of entitlement over, over women. Okay, I'm going to get to that in just a minute because I found out yesterday that you were doing that training now and it's, it's really interesting. But I just want to go back to your experiences of working with male perpetrators of violence because you, you ran a lot of men's behavioural change programs. Mm. And I, can you tell listeners what that entails mm. and, you know, the efficacy of it as mm-hmm. well? Yeah, right. So I'll start with the efficacy because that's the question that people ask constantly uh the trick to it is that they need to want to do the work because we can't replicate power over somebody who's using power over it doesn't work which Mm. is why you know part of the reason why we also sort of advocate for you know prison abolition and prevention instead of punishment because punishments don't work for perpetrators of family violence because punitive responses uh, are just actually ineffective. So in men's behaviour change, it's a, most of it is community-based um, men's behaviour change. And you can tell by what it's called that it's focusing specifically on the behaviour. And so we do this wonderful thing where we separate the person from their behaviour and actually just focus on what they're choosing to do and the impact of that uh, rather than the intention of it, mm. which is a fantastic perspective that's very led by victim survivors and very and really centralises victim survivors' experiences. And so in terms of the what the research tells us about the efficacy of it, you know, as I said, they have to want to change. And if they want to do the work, we've got the right framework for them to to work within. And so yeah, if the, and partly it's up to us to get them to that point of wanting to change. And the way that I think about it is, you know, if you're going to bang your head against a brick wall, which is often how it feels, at least bang your head where there's a crack. And so what that means for us in the work is that we need to find the crack. Mm, that's really, really interesting way mm. of putting it. It must be so – I mean, it, it, how, do you, how do you switch off at the end of the day? Because – I know you don't do the men's behavioural change anymore, mm. but you're still working in a similar field. To to do that work day in and day out and to see, and I know that this is true for so many people who work in violence prevention and, in, in you know, men's violence particularly, that it does feel like just a slow trickle of mm. change and... I think that that, is, that must be enormously frustrating because you are making a difference but it's happening at a glacial pace. Or does it feel that way? It, it kind of depends. And I don't know that I think about it like that, to be honest. Like I sort of think that we're planting seeds to a forest we, you know, are not necessarily going to be spending time in later. Oh, <laughs> so that's another great way to put it as well. Yeah, you kind of have to feel that way really. Mm. Like if we get invested in, in one man's individual change process, then we're in trouble. If you're um, hearing any little tip tap taps out there in listener land, that's Ada's cat. <laughs> it's walking, one one of them walking all over the kitchen table. Yeah, um, yeah I really love I really love that you know that you're planting seeds in a forest that you may not get to spend time in, and that can be applied to so many different things. I, I often use the analogy when talking about gender equality and or gender equity and the work that 
anyone is doing in that field that um, we're baking a cake, you know, mm. it's a similar kind of concept. You're baking a cake and and we may be at steps three and four of a 16-step cake baking process mm. But, you know, maybe this cake takes 150 years to bake and we won't actually get to taste it at the end. But it can't have been made exactly without the work that we're doing now. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's really important to remember because that just reminds me that we're on the shoulders of, you know, so many, mostly women, um, particularly in the context of, of family violence work, you know, who have done amazing things and have really... Um, really set the scene for us to pick up on that. Mm. The other thing I want to say in terms of the, you know, it feeling incredibly difficult at the end of the day is, you know, the past couple of past couple of years, I've started to focus less on vicarious trauma and more on vicarious resilience. Mm. And so, really thinking about, you know, wherever there is oppression, there is resistance. And when we focus on that resistance and the strength and survival of victim survivors, like with any marginalised communities, we're much more likely to feel resilient in the work and much more likely to be sustained. And I think for me, whenever anybody says, you know, that must be incredibly difficult work, I often say it's not it's not the work itself that's difficult, it's the mm. structures and systems that cause the problems in the first place. So, you know, working with victim survivors or working for victim survivors through those perpetrators is a really good reminder, I think, that we are working with with a lot of um, – just a lot of survival. Mm. And that focusing on that instead of – you know, not that we're not addressing the trauma, but focusing on that instead of the devastation can really make a big difference to how it feels and the longevity, I think, of mm. the work for all of us. That's really good advice as well for anyone, even if they're not obviously working specifically – in this field, but just anyone who feels like they're part of some kind of resistance or struggle um, and and sort of struggles as we all do with that sense of feeling demoralised or like nothing's changing or at the end of the day the structures are too powerful to dismantle, to focus on that resilience instead of and, – and to focus on the legacy of – people who've come before you and the legacy that you're still continuing mm. to contribute to and create yep. is a is a really kind of healing mm. mechanism, isn't it? It absolutely can be. And I think just it's not to say that the work doesn't have an enormous impact or there's not a personal cost, but but it's it doesn't have to destroy us. Mm. And so yeah, I think that's that's why focusing on that the resilience of humans can be really um, and also, you know, really believing that people can change, mm. which is can sometimes feel really difficult to hold on to that belief. You know, when you, for me, you know, sitting in a room full of fifteen men who have quite intentionally and deliberately harmed their partners, women and children in their lives, you know, you can sort of lose a bit of hope. But but then you might see something. You might see one of them sort of realize something, or you know, they they hear something from you that they've never heard before, and it's just slightly. Old, shifts their viewpoint mm. has it increased your empathy for well I guess it's a tricky question and it's an uncomfortable sort of thing to discuss but one thing that I struggle with a little bit myself now particularly since having a child who is a boy is looking at men who perpetrate great harm against women and children 
and seeing the child that they used to be. Um, not, not as a way of dismissing what they've done and certainly it doesn't have an impact on my rage about it. Mm. But more, I guess, questioning like what were the steps between mm. you as a four-year-old and you as a man who's making these choices now? Mm. Because unlocking that is surely part of the key to, to, to real men's behavioural change. Mm. It's not – it's funny because people will say, well, you just demonise men, et cetera, et cetera. But actually I want to – I want, as you know, to dismantle all of the things mm. that contribute to the creation of these Absolutely, men. Absolutely, totally. And I'm actually reminded of a Buffy quote there where she's talking about <laughs> – where she's um, talking about typical – uh, teenage boys and Xander says you're jumping to conclusions and she says I'm, I didn't jump I took a tiny step and their conclusions were <laughs> um, which I I love that um, because yeah it kind of relates to that but uh, I don't necessarily think of them as children I, I I've definitely I definitely did have a time when that happened after I had my daughter of mm. starting to see these really harmed people who I was working with victim survivors and seeing them as children um, which was a little bit of a different angle for me, a new way of looking at things. But what I do have, and I, I don't know if it's empathy or just an understanding of, is is the shame that you have to work through in order to change. Mm. And I relate to that as a white woman in terms of my own anti-racist work or, you know, focusing on, um, you know, becoming or understanding what intersectionality means in my life and what marginalised communities need from me. And so really thinking about the shame that I've had to work through, which, I, you know, which I, is, is the only way through. Like you have to work through that shame. And so shame is a very powerful motivator for not changing, but it's also really important information about my own humanity. And that's, and that's what, what I think about perpetrators. If they've got shame because of what they've done, that's good because that tells us that he's stepped outside of his values and part of the work that we can do is bring him back to those. And those values are the sort of values that we all share as humans. Mm. Mm. I think that people – I mean, Jess Hill writes about shame and its connection with male perpetrators of violence, but I think not enough people make that acknowledgement that you have made about the shame in ourselves and not running away from it, mm. but not allowing it to – um, not allowing the shame that we feel to stoke that indignation mm. that is the natural response to it or, or is the response that we allow to be the natural mm-hmm. response, you know, to be indignant about, how well, how dare you make me feel the shame? And mm. I relate to that as well, you know, in, in terms of um, my own kind of exploration of racism and anti-racism and the acknowledgement. I mean, I had a conversation with a friend yesterday, a gay man who has some experience of being marginalised, even though he's a white man, he's got lots of privileges, he's got some experience of being marginalised within masculinity. And we were talking about um, that resistance that so many men have to having conversations about sexism and misogyny and, you know, Christian... Oh, I should probably not mm. go down. The Attorney General. Yes. Um, you know, and Brittany Higgins and the response to all of this stuff that's happening in the country right now and has been happening, obviously, as we know, since time began, um, that this resistance to even having the dialogue about it comes from this place of, I mean, people, men saying, well, I'm not sexist, therefore that's the end of it. Mm. You know, well, firstly, you are. 
you are sexist. We're all sexist. Mm. We're all racist. You know, we're all conditioned by the system that we have been born into, the system that requires our allegiance in order to survive. And for men in particular, requires a particular kind of allegiance from you. You are sexist. Mm. So work with that and wake up every day and think to yourself, how am I not going to be sexist today? How will I actively resist that in myself? And as you said, you know, same goes for white people who absolutely 100% are beneficiaries of racism and white supremacy. Yep. For sure. <clears throat> Sorry, I have a friend actually who, you know, through he was uh, he was my co-facilitator in men's behaviour change, and he established a uh, a group of men working on male entitlement and working through their own privilege, and they come together once a month to talk about that. Um, and actually, they started reading your book, your mm-hmm. first book, as part of that process because they were they started doing this thing I think where they wanted to talk to the women in their lives, and I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> Don't do that. Mm. Read this book instead of, you know, getting women to do emotional labour for you because, you know, the work is there. Um, and they've been going for, I think, five years now and they meet monthly and it's excellent interrogating work and they allow anyone to attend, um, which is really fabulous. But it's it's a really impressive and very brave space, I think, mm. that Anthony has established in, in doing that work and that commitment is clear but he also says it's incredibly difficult to stay on top of because it's so ingrained mm. and and it would be so easy to stop and nobody would think badly of him if he did. Mm. Mm. I think that that's, you know, if we heard of more men doing things like that, it's funny because, you know, the concept, I've, I talk a lot about how patriarchy bonds men together and it, re- it relies on men's allegiance to each other as well in order to survive at, at the same time as it separates women from one another and relies on our separation uh, in order for us to be complicit mm. in the system, right? And sometimes when I talk about that and I say, you know, I, I talk about male bonding and the toxic, the toxic elements and aspects of, of male bonding – People's immediate response is, you know, again, it's one of probably one of shame, but also resistance uh, that, well, what don't you think that men should spend time together? You know, well, this is just this, this is just men being friends, or you know, well, the, we talk about mental health in these spaces. You know, all always that one mm. is a response to, you know, any critique of like Facebook groups that trade in horrendous misogyny mm. and rape jokes and domestic abuse jokes. Always, the response to any critique will be. Well, but these spaces are also doing amazing things for men discussing their mental health. And it's like, why does that have to come at the expense mm. of women's mental health? Mm. Why does that why how are we in a space where male bonding is not actually about vulnerability and opening opening themselves up to one another, but about codifying masculinity together in order to have some semblance of brotherhood? Yeah. They're really scary echo chambers. And that group Dads in Distress started out as an anti-suicide group for men who'd lost their children through the family court. Um, and so it started out with these great intentions, but then, of course, turned into a men's rights group. Mm. Um, so these spaces if they're not informed and driven by some really strong values, and ideally those values would be feminist, um, then they're just at risk of becoming spaces where misogyny is just right. And same with the incel movement, didn't start out that way. And so, yeah, there's real danger in those spaces. They need to be, you know, and I think the way that we do men's behaviour change 
is we're so focused on accountability of the perpetrators, but also accountability accountability to our of, of ourselves as facilitators. And so for that reason, the model requires that we have observers in those groups. And so for myself and Anthony, every time every week that we ran a group, which was you know for many many years, we would have at least well we'd have two observers every week. So they'd come and they'd watch us do the work, and it kept us accountable. So we're accountable to the victim survivors, but we also need to be accountable to the community. And so for Anthony, when he established this men's entitlement check-in group, you know, inviting people to come along and either participate or observe, you know, women in particular, um, that 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 was making it clear that they were invested in accountability. And without that, then it's there's too much risk. Why is it so difficult for people to be accountable in that way? I mean, I know the mm. answer, but... Yeah. Oh, I just think... How arrogant was that? I know the answer. <laughs> I think I know the answer. Mm. <clears throat> I think there's lots of answers to that, really. I mm. think it's really complex. I think shame comes into it again. I think people, um, you know, ac- accountability requires us to face ourselves and to face others. Uh, it's more work mm. to be accountable. It's more effort. Like, even in the groups that I was running every, you know, when we would have observers, it was... You know, we'd debrief them for an hour and then we'd debrief ourselves and then we'd write our notes and then we'd be leaving at 10 o'clock, you know, which was, you know, the group finished at eight. And so it would be an enormous amount of extra work just actually. Um, Yeah, I just think accountability, you know, I think of accountability as a gift. I think it's incredibly important, but we need to invite people into it, not force it on them because that's power over and... We just can't use power in that way. It's not okay. It's part of what's. It's part of the problem. And what? I mean, it's that. It's you think about things like the respect, respectful relationships training, and you know that people want to give to teenagers because apparently before they're teenagers, you can't talk to them about these <laughs> things, which is just you know the conservative upholding of you know, protecting, so quote unquote, protecting our children mm. from these frightening concepts of consent and respect mm. is so terrifying. What needs to happen? Like what to you, if you could radically overhaul the school system, uh, you know, the community kind of the, the community values that we are conditioned into, what would your utopia look like? Jeez, mm. that's a good question. Um, well, my daughter went to a primary school where they did respectful relationships education and I went in and observed one day and it was wonderful. So it was just through the Department of Education but it's fabulous and I know some of the people who established that program in the first place and they absolutely know what they're doing. But Um, not all primary schools offer it, do they? No, well that would be the thing. Like it would actually need to be consistent right across the entire education system but it also needs to start really young. Uh, It needs to start in daycare. It needs to be everywhere throughout our system but in order for that to be effective and for it to be authentic then they need to be paying the carers and the teachers more they need to be resourcing the department of education you know where they've got more than one worker per region there Mm. needs to be an entire army and teachers need to have mandatory training in you know responding to not only violence in the home but also sexism misogyny racism ableism any sort of discrimination that children enact in the school because whilst we can't speak to that child's intentions what we can what we do know is the incredibly harmful impact of that behavior and so that 
so many solutions to the world's problem come back to resourcing and the resourcing is there. It just needs to be redistributed. Mm. So true what you say about paying people properly as well. You know, I was thinking I, my son's kinder actually had a, a their getting to know you picnic last night. Um, it was meant to be held a few weeks ago, but we had the snap five day lockdown. Mm. So it's, that's why it's so late in the year. Um, oh, even though it's March, but it does feel like, <laughs> it does feel like the year is March, marching on. Yes. Um, Anyway, I was there, I was chatting to his educators last night who are all incredible, amazing people and obviously not paid anywhere near enough because the value that is placed on childcare because mm. it's a feminised industry is basically nil. And we were talking about the march that's happening on Monday. Uh, you know, for anyone who's listening who hasn't heard, there's a march for justice that is a response really to everything that's mm. going on in Australian Parliament right now. And it occurred to me, and obviously this is going to sound incredibly ignorant because, of course, this would be the case, but I was suddenly met, obviously, by being surrounded by these educators. They can't just, you know, the, the, some of the most disenfranchised industries in the country and they can't obviously just walk out mm. and go on a march. Yeah, because it's on a Monday. Yeah, because, and, <laughs> yeah, but I can because they're looking after my kid, you mm. know. Um, <laughs> so, again, yeah. it's like working through that shame of privilege and what – what are you going to do about it? You know, what I was sitting there and I was thinking, well, I can't just feel bad about it. Like mm. what purpose does that serve? So what can we do about it? Mm. You know, I don't have the answer, but. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of people who wouldn't be able to go to it. Like I can't mm. go because I am also working and often my organisation. So I work at Women's Health in the North, which is a glorious, wonderful place to work with a really supportive CEO and management. There's only like 20 of us. We're really little. But um, we also, because there's so few of us, the work that we do is, is really noticeable. And so it's, it would be really difficult if we stopped working on such short notice. Mm. Because I know I said to you earlier, I didn't even know about the march until yesterday. So many things on a Monday that if I tried to reschedule them, it would just completely blow out so much. Mm. It's terrible. We will have to think about other ways that we can be involved and whether that's a social media campaign. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, one of the things that COVID has done is highlight, obviously, what – many people knew to be true already, which is, you know, the extreme marginalisation of women in particular in low-paid industries. Yeah. Um, and also the essential nature of their work. So essential workers being yeah. basically shat on yeah. by economics. Yeah. Um, that's, that's an interesting segue, though. As a family violence prevention worker, what are your observations? Because we did talk last year, um, we did an Instagram Live mm -hmm. after the – lockdown started and we talked a little bit about the impact of lockdown on um, people who are experiencing family violence. What have been some of the things that you've observed in that as we're coming up to, you know, the anniversary of lockdown? Mm. Yeah, it was really interesting because the sector braced itself and looked at starting to shift workers around to move them into sort of the crisis response and to be able to respond to this enormous demand that just didn't come and um, the reason for that which is no surprise at all is because you know victim survivors couldn't make make a phone call because the perpetrators were there mm -hmm. and so what that did was that it removed what we call protective factors from the victim survivors and so they had to endure uh, you know 
more abuse and violence and monitoring from the perpetrators because they just couldn't get out. And services adapted so beautifully. They set up, you know, email addresses, web chats. They, you know, got really, really good at secret phone calls and, you know, which was so incredible. And all of this, you know, family violence workers were in their homes Mm -hmm. and and doing this incredibly high-risk work. And, you know, I have a private practice where I do clinical, clinical supervision for family violence workers for family violence specialists and a lot of them a a lot of them were doing you know some of them were doing men's behavior change groups from their home via zoom some of them were doing crisis response and triage from their kitchen table Mm. while their kids were being homeschooled in the other room and it was just remarkable um the organizations were working really hard on you know really focusing on sustainability in order to retain the specialized workforce um and you know, I don't know. I mean, it was just incredibly Mm. uh, remarkable across the board. When the restrictions began to ease, um, then the calls started to come and and the busy sector got busier. And so they were able to, you know, respond in a way that they were waiting to for all that time. Mm. Yeah. But just, you know, having... Because one of the high risk factors in family violence, and we talk about high risk factors as high risk for uh, homicide or serious injury or induced disability, one of the major ones is unemployment for the perpetrator. And that's not because of financial stress, because family violence is not a class issue, but it's just simply because he's around more. Mm. And he's around more to monitor, to abuse, to control. And it removes those protective factors, as I said, into, you know, like the victim survivors just can't have a break. They can't make a call and they they get quite stuck. Um, Yeah. I remember reading a few years ago about the impact of natural disasters on family violence as well and on domestic abuse. Um, And obviously it makes sense, but I don't think enough people realise that link. Mm. And one of the things – so after Black Saturday – family violence uh, reporting rates skyrocketed in Australia after the um, Christchurch earthquake, mm-hmm. the same thing happened. Um, it, you know, the link between increased reports of domestic abuse and natural disasters and also sporting matches mm-hmm. is clear. Mm-hmm. One of the problems, though, with natural disasters, and COVID obviously would fall into this mm-hmm. category, is that there is a, a rush from people to... Um, Empathise is the wrong word, but to... Excuse. Excuse, mm. yeah, because, oh, well, the men are really struggling. Mm-hmm. The men, you know, the men the men were really struggling when... Uh, I mean, uh, not to diminish at all <coughs> the impact of bushfires, but why is it that women and children are always seen as the ca- collateral damage mm. of men's emotional mm-hmm. well-being or, or distress? Mm. So one of my colleagues, Deb Parkinson, actually did research into the Black Saturday bushfires as part of her work with um, what's called the Gender and Disaster Pod. And so it's a consortium of emergency services, family violence services and and, uh, um, and researchers. And what they found was the, there's a, the connection between masculinity and violence was there. Mm. And so what was going on during the the Black Saturday bushfires is that men were protecting the properties, protecting the community, and the women were protecting the children, the animals, and leaving. And so 
One of the things that I often think about when talking about disasters is my friend was working at the at Safe Steps that night, which is the 24-hour central access point to victim survivors, to refuge and safe houses. And she got a call from a woman who said, you know, my husband left and he left me here to burn. Um, and that was this real, this massive turning point uh, for all of us, I think, in thinking about the ways in which perpetrators will use those disasters to further harm. Mm. And so that's absolutely one of the things that we saw was the violence was already there. It was just, it is because there was now more opportunity to harm. But the thing that Jan said was, you know, there's so many awards for men's bravery in bushfires, but there's no awards for the sort of brave that women are. Mm. And if you think about what it would mean to, you know, it's again kind of that idea that that the ways in which we don't place value on women or femininity, I can't say that word, (laughs) Um, and, you know, like the amount of courage it takes to get all your kids, the animals. Absolutely. And... That's remarkably brave. Staying and fighting is remarkably brave. But part of the problem was that men were offered support afterwards and a majority of them didn't take it up mm. because of masculinity and because of gender role expectations. They they thought they could handle it themselves and they couldn't because they're humans and humans can't handle that themselves. They need support. Mm. And so it wasn't it wasn't their distress that caused the violence. It was their masculinity. I agree completely about the notion of, uh, you know, no one recognising the courage and bravery that women summon every day mm. in the face of these things, not just in natural disasters, but in the face of just surviving the world that mm. we live in. You know, I think I've talked to you before about how powerful it would be if we had, in the same way that there are war memorials fucking everywhere, mm. if we had a memorial to women, mm. get a memorial to all of the women in Australia who've, I mean, you couldn't name all of them, mm. but just a, a symbolic place that acknowledged yeah. the loss, mm. you know, and obviously also celebration of, you know, women who've endured and survived and yeah, achieved, but, of course. you know, a monument to, to what we've lost. Mm. Um, how many bloody avenues of remembrance do we need to – you know, and that's the other thing as well. When International Women's Day rolls around and men everywhere are always like, well, why do we bloody need an International Women's Day? This is sexist. <laughs> um, you know, and sneering at the idea, even if – because a lot of women don't know the history of International Women's Day and for anyone who's listening to this who doesn't know, and if you use Instagram, I've got a highlight on there where I – I look at how it, you know, it was born out of the socialist labor, labor movement. It was obviously created by women, but incredible working class women who were activists who were fighting for change for, you know, for other women who were working in the trenches of the system. Um, but even leaving that aside, even if you didn't know that history, the fact that you know, men will often say, well, why do we need an International Women's Day? And women will respond saying, well, because we need to acknowledge gender inequality and all of the things that women still endure. And that's not enough either, Mm. you know. But how is it different to any other historical day? That's the thing. I I feel like people are always looking for, well, what can I say to this person to win the argument? Mm. Or what can I say to get them to be quiet? And maybe that's all we need to say. Well, it's, it's an historical day. That, oh, it's a day that has historical significance to women in the labour movement 
And we celebrate it in exactly the same way that we celebrate Labor Day, in exactly the same way that we acknowledge Anzac Day. It is a day that has symbolic mm. meaning. And that's all that it, if that's all that it has to be to you, then that's fine. Of course, that won't, you know, they'll still find a way to shit on it. Of course, absolutely, because they're not talking about the day. They're talking no. about women. It's absolute gaslighting, isn't it? Just yeah. it's, it's crazy making and it takes up so much effort and so much time and it's exhausting mm-hmm. and it's, yeah, it's like this epic deflection from the men's movement. Mm. Well, that's mm. why I always say to women just stop, you know, resist the urge to respond. Mm. We don't owe it to men to convince them, particularly not when they come to us in bad faith. Absolutely. There's, as you said before, there's enough work out there that if they're truly interested, like men coming to me and demanding a conversation, well, if you really cared about it, then you'd debate me. <laughs> like, dude, I've written two books about yes. this and hundreds and thousands of article words. Like, you can go and fucking learn about it yourself, yeah. but you won't. So I don't owe you anything. I think that that's a really – that's a, 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 something that it takes quite a while to come to because we feel like if we don't give them the conversation that we've lost in some way, we've failed. Mm. Um, but it's not the, – the success of the feminist movement doesn't rest on the shoulders of one woman being able to convince Barry that, oh you know, yes. gender inequality is real. Yeah. So just just don't give them – and that will, that will infuriate them more than anything mm. because they want to engage you. They want to laugh at you. They want to mock you. They want to feel get, superior yeah. as well. And as you get more and more upset, they, they will thrive on that, mm. you know. But just saying to them, I don't know you anything, mm. go and read about it. Yeah. It, if you, it's fine if you don't believe it. It doesn't make it not true. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I guess just coming to – talking about Joss Whedon and really, you know, sort of seeing the ways in which different people have responded to it. There was so much gaslighting that took Mm. place in there. And Uh, Just give a little background for people who aren't familiar with what's happened with Buffy. I know. I forget that people aren't (laughs) obsessed with Buffy and don't focus on everything that is Buffy. Um, So Charisma Carpenter, who who played um, Cordelia Chase in both Buffy and Angel, so as part of what we'll call the Buffy-verse or the Whedon-verse, which we don't call it that anymore. Um, And and let's just also say for younger listeners that Buffy was a television show that debuted in the late 90s. It was about a girl, Buffy Summers, who was sort of like the quintessential blonde final – not final girl. She would be the first person to die in any horror movie. Exactly. But she was part of the legacy of the Slayers. So one girl given powers on her 16th birthday to fight all of the demons and monsters in the world. I mean, it's a brilliant feminist origin story. It's a great concept. And and it speaks to a lot of – women in particular it really does and I think that it it also you know there's a lot of sci-fi nerds that came on board with it as well and just like it kind of spanned across a number of different subcultures I loved it because I think it was the first thing that I found funny like Mm. when I found Buffy I was like oh my god this is my humor this is so good I just loved it and then it, it appealed to me on so many levels but Joss Whedon who created it um, who we have loved for many, many years. Uh, you know, many people have spoken out about him being very toxic, very harmful, very abusive and predatory. And um, there's a number of people who have spoken out and one re- most recently is Cordelia her name's Charisma Carpenter, Cordelia Chase, um, who played this amazing sort of badass uh, kind of a 
bully at first, but, you know, the popular girl Mm. at Sunnydale High. And she spoke out about the ways in which she was treated and targeted specifically by Joss and his nasty behaviours and his sort of, you know, very entitled, mean, superior, you know, behaviours. Uh, in particular targeting her about her weight during her pregnancy uh, and then wrote her off the show with a ridiculous storyline. Actually, a lot of people kind of tuned out when that happened. That was when uh, he he did the Angel crossover, so that wasn't in Buffy. That was in Angel, Angel, yeah. Um, And so I know I'm assuming people have so much knowledge here, aren't I? It's terrible. Anyway, if you've not watched Buffy, it's on stand. The the point (laughs) is that it is one of those shows where, I mean, Joss – Joss's behaviour aside, Joss is gross and totally, definitely well overdue to be cancelled. But also – and so we wouldn't need to cancel people if they were freaking accountable and yeah. he just hasn't been. He's said yeah. nothing about this except well, that he denies it. it yeah, like, like so many men in <sighs> positions like that, you know, regardless yeah. of the industry. Um, that aside – there are things, you know, when you go back to a show that was created in the late 90s, there's always going to be things that become glaringly mm. problematic mm-hmm. when viewed through a 2021 mm. lens, just as things that are made now will seem that way in 20 years' time. Mm-hmm. So I don't think either of us are sitting here and saying, well, if it weren't for Joss being a predator, this is a perfect show. It's, nothing's perfect, mm. but it does have – it was the first mainstream, uh, you know – at the time it launched, it was this. There was no streaming or anything like that. You mm. watched TV week to week. Oh my god, with ads. Yeah, and it was, was the first. <laughs> it was the first TV show that our generation of women had, where we saw us being given powers. Mm. You know, and yes, I know Charmed came later, mm. but it was shortly afterwards. But but it was the first one where the weak or the girl that would have always been presented as weak and also frivolous, mm. girly, like Buffy loves. Heels, she loves mm. pink. Um, that that kind of girl is given the power to fight yep. the demons, mm. which so often in the universe are really just metaphors for misogyny. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, there a, a number of people from Buffy and Angel, a number of the actors um, put their support behind Charisma. Uh, Nicholas Brandon, who played uh, Xander was a rambling weirdo who actually just said, you know, my experience with Joss was complicated but, you know, it was kind of okay and, you know, there's always toxic stuff on film sets. And Anthony Stewart had kind of said similar things. Like his response was a little bit – I just don't think he was prepared for the question in the interview that I watched and it wasn't a great response. Some people have not responded at all, including um, Alison Hannigan who played Willow and Christine uh, Sutherland who played Buffy's mum. And we, and they've been called out for not um, speaking out, but we also I think it's really important to I think it's important to let people speak out in their own time and to also not assume that they've not had their own experiences, um, or you know if they or that it's very complicated to speak you know because they all have their own relationships with him, which could also be that they're you know choosing his side, mm. uh, which is well the thing is I feel. Personally, I, I clocked that Alison Hannigan hadn't said mm. anything or hadn't offered Charisma Carpenter support and mm. hadn't offered her support. Um, and my gut instinct is to be furious about that and to judge Alison Hannigan for mm. it. And maybe that's the correct response. But it is interesting that 
that that expectation is given more strongly to, to women, women when they are more likely to be hurt by speaking out. Yeah, absolutely. Which is not, I mean, Alison Hannigan still has an enormous amount of power, so mm. I'm not defending her or mm. saying, you know, that she that she potentially is like going to be harmed if she mm. if she talks. I think honestly, my personal assumption is that she's actually just taking Joss Whedon's side. Yeah, yeah. I feel I get a kind of company girl vibe right. from her, and. And not like other girls vibe too. God. But it's also that thing about, you know, Joss Whedon has enormous power. You know, he obviously worked on a lot of the Marvel films, which is like the whole world right now. He did some terrible – he actually did some terrible things on Marvel. Like mm. with uh, with Hawkeye's character, um, he gave him a secret wife and children living in isolation in the countryside and the woman the, – the wife who's pregnant with a bunch of children saying to him, go off and be a hero, mm. I support you. And it's like, holy shit, Joss, is this your fantasy? Where it, you totally, just, it totally is. That is 100% what he – how foul. he sees himself, you it's know. so disgusting – and it actually ruined the film and Hawkeye and in the comics. I'm not actually a comic nerd, but my partner is. And, you know, they've really reported that in the comics, Hawkeye lived alone in an apartment in New York. So why why change him? Why change Hawkeye if not to just give us this idea of an idealised woman uh, who is just – you know, just supporting you to go off and do your thing while they raise your brood. It's mm. foul. And absolutely, it was that moment for me. I was like, holy shit, we got to kill our idols, man. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not okay. <laughs> we, we've got to stop thinking in Joss we trust because we cannot trust him. Well, I think that he will, you know, struggle to ever come back from this. And nor should he come back from it, to be honest. Hope so, and I think that you know, like historically, uh, well, no, nor should he, because it's been so long. Even if he were to, you know, really do that inner work Mm. and become accountable, Mm. it's just been too long of him refusing it. And there's zero evidence that he will do that Mm. unless it's for his own benefit. So what's the? So I get asked this question a lot too, and my response is always, I think it depends on how much you like the art. um, (laughs) To be honest which is a very tongue-in-cheek response, but people say, like, can you still enjoy mm. these things when the person who made them is is fucked up? Mm. Um, what point do you separate the mm. art from the artist? Mm. Yeah. I mean... Can you still watch Buffy? Absolutely, I can. And because I'm really conscious of all of the other people that worked on it and... You know, some of my favourite writers, like Jane Espenson, you know, on on that show, and plus the effort that all of the actors have put into it Um, and what it means for me. Like, I know, you know, like when I was in my early 20s, which was over 20 years ago, where I would watch Buffy on video. I had the VHS. I had all the videos and I would watch them every single night and it got me through my 20s, which were Grim, you know, in lots of wonderful, but also, you know, they were my twenties. Twenties, <laughs> exactly. And it was everything to me. And that, that, that's it's mine. You know, it's not Joss's. And I, I'm really reminded, as you say, that of you know, Anita Sarkeesian, who's a pop culture feminist, wonderful human, who says it's okay to like something and be critical of it. Mm. And so, you know, as you say with Buffy, there's so many things about it that it would be done quite differently now. Like there's, I think, maybe four or five black actors throughout the entire series, which is surely unacceptable even by 90s standards. Um, But 
you know, like uh, understanding, I don't know, still being able to love it and be critical of it is kind of part of that. Mm. And thinking critically is incredibly important. And if we cancelled everything that we loved, we might not be left with much because there's this thing, you know, when it, when it, I think when Joss's ex-partner spoke out about his his abuse of her in their relationship and his emotional abuse um, and abandonment, I just I remember sitting there and thinking, I'm not surprised, and I will never be surprised. But this, you know, because it's a reminder that if we, as soon as we idolize somebody, we're at risk of being hurt by their shitty behavior, and. I remember thinking this, you know, like in as a teenager and all the way through the 90s, like being really into punk music and then meeting the guys from those bands and they were absolute douchebags or that they'd like sleep with their fans and just completely inappropriate. And I learned pretty quickly that as soon as you meet the people that, you know, who do the art that you like, the art's ruined. And so it is kind of better to... I don't know. I don't no, know the know, answer to your question. I know, I know what you mean. Well, that's why I say that, you know, I tongue-in-cheek oh, my response yeah. is how much you like the art. I know. Because I don't like Woody Allen's movies anyway. But right. because I, I – like I quite freely take the stance, no, no watching Woody Allen. Yes. I mean, the thing is mm. maybe it's a case as well of like past versus present, mm. you know. Would I watch a show that Joss created now? Probably I wouldn't support it. Mm. Uh, if if it's already been made, does that make it different somehow? I mean, it is one of those like curly questions where. But also, there's the definitely. An- sorry, the answer should also just be that there's just been too fu- many fucking white men making it's too much art through history. Hundred percent. So, because what I was going to just say there was maybe it's not just making this thing that we're enjoying now, but it's possibly some other perpetrator mm. and. Somewhere along the line, somebody who is deeply sexist and racist and harmful is making our content. And we, it's, it's incredibly difficult to not. Mm. And the uh, more, as with Joss, the more they surround themselves in this sort of like feminist persona, you know, the more likely it seems to me, or well, the, not the more likely, but the more we should be aware of the possibility that they're hiding in plain sight. Hundred percent. You know the number of men who've aligned themselves with feminist causes, and are abusing women behind the scenes, but and also because men are rewarded for being feminists in a way that women oh just God, aren't. You I know, know. <laughs> absolutely. Like, that's why I hate that narrative that you know men should be feminists because women want to sleep with feminist men. It's like that should not be the reason that men are feminists. But feminist so they men can are, get laid. But feminist men are more likely to be slept with. Whereas fem- I've never been. Nobody's ever hooked, tried to hook up with me no. because I'm a feminist. No. In fact, the opposite has happened <laughs> more than once. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> the idea that somehow – well, it's the same with, you know, I'm sure that Joss got attention from a lot of very beautiful women because mm. the uh, the persona that gets to be created around yeah. a man like that is very appealing. Mm. And the way that we reward men mm. in our society yeah. is through giving them our attention. Mm. Um, and, you know, having sex with them mm. um, and wanting to be aligned with them for our own – for the reputation that we then get because the only the only positive reinforcement that – one of the ways that women can get positive reinforcement totally. is – male gaze. Male yeah. gaze, yeah. And this I'm attached to this man, therefore that reflects on me. Mm. Um, yeah, like certainly very few people have – 
very few men have been drawn to me because I'm a feminist. And if they are, I'm always very suspicious. Yeah. You know, what are you trying to get out of Mm. being aligned with me? Mm. Um, I also think as well, just sort of deviating a little bit into internet dating and stuff, I always think, what would your ex-girlfriend think Mm. if we started to date? What would your ex-girlfriend think of that? Would she be angry about it? Would she be pissed off that you you get to like be after what happened with you and her I mean it's all those questions Mm. that I find it impossible not to think about like did she do all the work to get him woke to then be someone who you'd hook up with yeah or you know then I've had men who I've gone on one date with and not not even kissed Uh, it's filtered back to me that they've told other women oh yeah we dated mm. no no we didn't mm. we didn't don't use me yeah to make yourself more appealing to this woman or to make yourself seem safe mm. to her yeah I remember a guy um came up to me in an, in the airport once before before COVID obviously when we could still travel um and he said I'm a huge fan and he was there with a, a female friend and he introduced me to her and he said I'm a huge fan can can we take a photo and I said yeah sure of course took a photo with him Weirdly, I mean, he told me that they were on their way to Canberra. They were going to a gig or something like that. And weirdly, the next day, someone messaged me from Canberra, a woman, and said, oh, this guy's Tinder profile has just popped up. Um, do you know him? Because he his his caption on his profile was – I mean, it was, a pic, it was the picture of me and him. Oh, well. And the caption was – and it wasn't the name that he'd given me either. The caption was, in Canberra for 24 hours, want to fuck? question mark which fine like I don't have a problem with someone going to Canberra and being like I'm here for 24 hours want to get together and bone such a brutal way to ask it yeah (laughs) I did have a huge problem with the fact that that was my fucking photograph why did you do that I think I mean I know why of course makes it seem like oh my god he's he's a feminist he's safe might make it seem like we're friends because I was smiling and you know had our arms around each other um anyway I posted it on Twitter and I said I don't I, – I did him the service of covering his face because I gave him the benefit of the doubt that maybe he didn't know that that was a wrong thing to do, mm. um, which was very generous of me, I will say. <laughs> and I posted it on Twitter and I said, I don't know this guy. If you see this profile, I'm not endorsing him. This is gross. I find this disgusting. Don't swipe on him, basically. And he emailed me and he said um oh my friend saw your tweet that i didn't post that you know i'm so sorry that this has happened i posted the photograph of you and me on my facebook and it was public and someone stole it and created this profile for me and you know i had nothing to do with it i feel terrible and i just wrote back to him and i was like stop mm. at least do me the decency of not fucking lying to me yeah. you know i know you did it apologize say that you didn't intend to make me feel this way and, you know, take it down. Like accountability, as mm. you're saying. But he like made up this weird lie that makes no sense. I said to him, why would someone randomly in Canberra find your photograph of me and and set you up like this? What To what purpose does that serve? That's outrageous. The it wasn't me defence is never uh, believable. No. <laughs> No, I mean, at least come up with a, at least come up with a remotely convincing story. Mm, I was hacked. <laughs> yeah, or just just yeah. be accountable. Like honestly, if he'd written back and he'd said, "I'm so sorry, that was really Absolutely. gross. I wasn't thinking. I 
I apologise, I've taken it down. And accept that then he will forever in my eyes be seen as disgusting. Mm. Accept it, you know. Accept that you did something wrong and apologise. And even if I'm still angry at you, that's fine. Mm. I'm entitled to, to be, you know. Yeah, it's just the lack of the lack of accountability for it. It's such a good reminder, I think, about how we can absolutely do things differently because mm. accountability is always – like it can be harder and it might not come naturally. Oh, dear. Someone's here. Well, someone's somewhere. Um, yeah, and it might not come naturally. It's something that we need to practice and yeah. get better at. And it can be very, very humbling. And not everybody likes that, especially if they're used to feeling superior. And so I guess in thinking about, you know, like the sorts of things that could, that really could make a difference in terms of how we experience men who are named as being abusers or named as being harmful, um, you know, it would make an enormous difference to the world if they just said, holy shit, yeah, I'm going to now go off and do some work and and do better and I'm sorry and I'm so sorry it's harmed you, I'll do better. And accept as well that after that work is done, they may not return to the standing that they had. But also that the work might be lifelong. Yeah. Because yeah. the socialisation is deep, you know, mm. just the same as it is with racism. Like mm. we're not going to be posting a black square in our Instagram and suddenly we're not racist anymore. No, that, but a lot of people think that that's all that it takes, doesn't it? Well, yeah, Don't but it's, it's just not well, same, true. Same with men, men thinking that all that it takes for them to dismantle rape culture is to not personally rape a woman. Is to be one of the good guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the the race that people you know the the speed with which people want to absolve and forgive the most powerful men mm. in the world yeah you know remember when Louis C.K. was um, mm-hmm. you know finally admitted to the truth of the rumors that he had spent years not even just denying but treating as beneath him mm. like not e- wouldn't even. T- entertain them as being possible because he was a serious artist and so that's just below me Mm. then finally obviously had to admit it because uh, you know the new york times piece came out about him with all of these women naming Mm -hmm. him as an abuser um and i remember that he released that apology quote unquote apology letter where he mentioned at least four times how deeply all of these women admired him and how he was deeply admired and how he had let down his fans who deeply admire him, etc. And not once said the word sorry mm. in this apology letter. Not once did he say, I am sorry. He just sort of framed it in this, like, I let people down, you know, I've got an addiction mm. to masturbating in front of people kind of way. Yeah, that's not a thing. No, but I, I, but I remember <laughs> sharing it and going, fuck this guy, like this, mm. is, this is shit. And someone responded to that saying, well, he said sorry, what more do you want? Yeah, so I mean sorry is a behaviour mm. and it's the kind of thing that we talk about in men's behaviour change. It's like if you say sorry but it's inauthentic, it's just part of the abuse cycle and it's part of the ways in which you ensure that people are emotionally linked to you and it's, it's, it's nothing if it's not followed up with action. I, I love that. You've said so many fucking nuggets today, <laughs> like gold nuggets. Sorry is a behaviour. Mm-hmm. It's not just a word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never heard it put like that before. Mm. I, I think the same of love, actually, and we talk about that too in Men's Behaviour Change, that love is a behaviour. And, you know, if, if anybody is sort of sitting there questioning, 
what these behaviours mean, if it doesn't feel like it comes from a place of love and respect, then it's possibly not coming from a place of love and respect and, and could be causing harm. And so we, yeah, we really need to think about actions and not just words because words can really trap us. Mm. And a letter like that, that's just words. Mm. It's just him trying to get props and trying to get away with it. I want to recap those three great things, those three great one-liners that you've said in the episode today. So the first was uh, about, you know, we're planting seeds in a forest we may not get to spend time in. Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> so beautiful. Um, sorry is a behaviour as well. And love is a behaviour. Think about actions instead of words. And what was the other one that you said something and I was like, that's... Was it about the brick wall? Yes. Yeah, if you're going to bang your head against a brick wall, at least bang your head where there's a crack. Oh, so good. Yeah, and somebody also – because I've said that – I say that in my training actually just to support workers to feel as though there is a way to work with people who are resistant. Mm -hmm. Um, And somebody said recently there's a song lyric – and it might be Leonard Cohen, you'll probably correct me – where he said, you know, if there's a – that the crack is where the light gets yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is no, that Leonard Cohen? Leonard Cohen? Yeah, Cohen, cool, yeah. good. Yeah. The um, crack is where the light gets in. Yeah, which I love. And yeah. so you think about accountability as that light and, and how we can sort of invite somebody into that light, which can make a big difference to their lives mm. and, of course, the lives of the people that love them and don't want to be harmed anymore. I've loved talking to you in your kitchen Me on too. this overcast Saturday mm. morning. Um, I'm sorry that I turned up in such a wretched state. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, I feel like if I could get if I could broadcast you into everyone's living rooms every <laughs> week, then I think that we would. I think that would be a very good thing. But you are thinking about making a podcast yourself. Yeah, so I was thinking about um, doing a podcast about friendship with with a friend of mine who uh, has recently been diagnosed with ADHD um, and just wanting to talk about our own experiences of of friendship, but from a sort of neurotypical, neurodiverse perspective. Um, Because, yeah, I just think it would be something really interesting to, to talk about what friendships mean how they can hurt about expectations and all sorts of things mm. so who knows if I'll do it but it's it kind of I mean it's such a different angle to what I normally think and talk about you know so it could be lovely and just quickly as well before we wrap up what things bring you joy uh yes yeah, so Buffy brings me joy <laughs> which uh you know and you know as I said I spent so many years with Buffy in my life helping me through um my daughter my pets my partner uh and you know clothes vintage clothes mostly op shops op shops they bring me joy too oh so much your house brings (laughs) me joy you've got all these wonderful woolen wall hangings vintage wall hangings and they just they're bringing me a lot of joy Mm, right now and all all of the plants too Mm. um I'm just going to wrap up. Um, I'm just wondering which path it is. Anyway, okay. Ada Conroy, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. I love you. I love the work that you're doing. I'm so glad that we have people like you in the world and that you in the world, you are in the world specifically as well. Thank you so much for spending this Thanks, hour Clementine. with me. It's a pleasure. 
Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead. The Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.